The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Finstaden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today was an interesting day that news came out over the weekend that a flight from Beijing to Addis Ababa landed loaded with vaccines from China. Now, that by itself shouldn't really be that interesting because we're seeing a lot of vaccines leaving China. But this was the first flight as part of the new air bridge connecting China and Africa through hubs in Addis Ababa and Dubai. Now, this was a deal that was signed 68 days ago. It only took 68 days. It's really incredible. Between Ethiopian Airlines and Tsainyao, Tsainyao, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's the logistics division of Alibaba. And they're working together to create this air bridge that's connecting Beijing and Guangzhou with Addis Ababa to distribute vaccines. So the first of those flights came by. And it's very interesting because this is now part of a much bigger story about Chinese vaccines in Africa. And over the past four or five days, there has just been a flurry of activity on the Chinese vaccine front, not just in Africa, but across the global south. Let's focus our discussion today on what's going on in Africa. Let me read you, Kobus, a few of the announcements that have come down, again, just in the past few days. 300,000 doses uh, now that have been donated to Egypt. That's on top of three other donations that have been made. 200,000 vaccines uh, have been committed to Zimbabwe, 100,000 to the Republic of Congo. Interestingly enough, along with the donation to the Republic of Congo, they also canceled $13 million of interest-free debt as well. 50,000 doses donated to the Seychelles. That happened a couple of weeks ago. And the deliveries have already been made to Morocco, Egypt, and Algeria. And the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs confirmed that shipments are on their way to Sierra Leone and Equatorial Guinea. Now, we haven't heard from many of Africa's major states, that is Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. But there is talk now coming out of Nigerian Foreign Minister Jeffrey Onyema in Abuja that he is in discussions with the, uh, the the Chinese to secure supplies of vaccines. There is this concern growing in Nigeria that the vaccine plan is not moving fast enough, and the Nigerians had not contacted the Chinese early on in the process, but now Foreign Minister Onyema says that is now underway as well. Interesting side note, Kobus, in your neck of the woods, there's no word yet if South Africa is going to change its current policy so far to refuse the approval of Russian or Chinese vaccines now that it's halted use of AstraZeneca's vaccines, given that it turned out that uh, AstraZeneca's doses have not uh, been able to offset the variant uh, that's in South Africa as well. So that's just one, one more country that's in play. Again, we're talking about a lot of movement on the vaccine politics front is causing a lot of hand-wringing in U.S. and European capitals and in the media about the Chinese vaccine diplomacy, vaccine politics, the soft power drive that they're doing, whatever you want to call it. 
but there's a lot of anxiety and it's getting louder. Now, Deutsche Welle, which is the German public broadcaster, has been writing a lot about this, and we've been featuring some of these columns in our daily newsletter. Let me bring you a couple quotes here from, uh, from Deutsche Welle that I think really reflect the growing anxiety about China's vaccine strategy here. This one's from uh, Deutsche Welle's chief reporter, Mio, Mio Drag Sorich. The fact that the West is sitting around and allowing this to happen is an error that can and must be criticized. The communist government standing in the region, and I think he's referring in this case to Europe, but it certainly could apply to Africa as well, is on the rise for all to see. By delivering vaccines, it's not only promising help, but also providing it in a very practical way. Listen, there's another article from Deutsche Welle that also kind of touches on these themes. In this case, it's about Africa and what the Chinese are doing there. And uh, the journalist writes, the hoarding of vaccines by the West could become a deal breaker, the last straw for that matter. The fast pace at which the Sino-Africa relationship grew in the past decade and the reliability that China has shown as a development partner delivering vaccines and saving millions of African lives could prove to Africa the old saying, a friend in need is a friend indeed. Interestingly enough, that little phrase at the end there is actually a phrase that Chinese officials have been using to describe their strategy for Africa as well. So it's some interesting that Deutsche Welle picked up on that. And then there's John Campbell, who's a senior fellow for Africa Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. And he described Beijing's COVID-19, what he called vaccine diplomacy, as a continuation of China's efforts to frame itself as the solution to rather than the cause of the pandemic. So you can get a sense at the frustration in the U.S. In US and Europe about what's kind of happening. Kobus, there was a quote from Kok Xingwei, who's the South China Morning Post senior Southeast Asia reporter, who said in an article recently that uh, the biggest problem of 2020 was the coronavirus. Then the biggest one of 2021 is shaping up to be vaccine inequality. This is playing out in Africa right now, Kobus, and the geopolitical ramifications look like they're going to be absolutely enormous. Yeah, it's, you know, in the first place, it, it looks like this, you know, depending on how on how the rollout goes and how effective the vaccines are, this could be a real kind of soft power bonanza for China um, in, in Africa, but also in the whole of the global south. Um, I think it also um, ends up inadvertently confirming some preconceived ideas that I think a lot of Africans have about Europe and the US, um, particularly that, you know, kind of that, that the, the kind of hard capitalist kind of like approach that these countries frequently take to these problems is now having, you know, it's, it's causing inequities, not only within those countries where we see people of color, like, you know, frequently lagging behind both in, uh, you know, kind of suffering more under under infections and then also lagging behind in vaccinations, but also globally, you know, that, that there is just simply this kind of pecking order um, and that it's impossible to get away from a, a, from a a conflation of that with a kind of a racial pecking order, maybe you know there's that that it, it just kind of compounds ideas that you know that that these that Western countries are just inherently kind of self-centered, you know, and 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 selfish. So so I think I think it's it's a very interesting development to see all of these different narratives roll out at once. Yeah, and we have to be very clear up front in our discussion that this isn't an easy win for the Chinese. There is a lot at stake for them. First of all, these vaccines they have to work. Number two, the vaccines that the Chinese are giving out have to be able to adapt to the new variants. That's the issue we saw in South, uh, South Africa, and we're seeing in other parts of the world as well. Third, there is the growing problem of Chinese fake vaccines that are now starting to appear. The Chinese themselves have been cracking down domestically on that, 
But if a lot of counterfeit vaccines start to find themselves in the developing world, that too could be a problem. So reputationally, this is going to be a tough fight. Also, let's be very clear that the Chinese don't have the market to themselves. The Russians and Indians are competing vigorously against the Chinese as well. It's just the U.S. and Europeans and the northern countries that are really more or less on the sidelines in the global south. So let's get some perspective on this very, very interesting issue, in part because there are so many moving parts. Nwachuku Igbuniki is the Sub-Saharan Africa Community Manager for the independent journalism website Global Voices. He wrote a fascinating two-part series, COVID-19 Vaccine in Africa, Caught Between China's Soft Power Diplomacy and the West Vaccine Nationalism. And he joins us on the line from Ibagan in southwest Nigeria. A very good morning to you, Nudge. Yeah, good morning, Eric. Great to have you on the show. Really enjoyed your series. You really laid out so many of the issues that are confronting the Chinese, but also Africans and the U.S. and Europe, and you were unsparing in your report. Let me just start with a quote, and I'd like you to expand on it and respond. You wrote, It is hypocritical to heckle China for their soft power COVID-19 vaccine diplomacy while Western governments conveniently pursue vaccine nationalism. That seems to be the core of the issue today as we're looking at it. Tell us a little bit more about that part of the story. Okay, I think essentially there are many layers as you actually outlined or most of the discussions prior to this and um, it was something that um, became quite obvious as I began the research and eventually uh, the research leading up to the story and the eventual writing of the story itself because um, on the one hand um, the whole issue of the COVID-19 being um, having to have started in Wuhan, China. And then, of course, the West um, and Nay, so to speak, essentially the U.S. government or the former U.S. government insisting that, okay, that China has a lot more um, role to play and that the OPEC system um, costs um, or, I mean, to a large extent, was responsible for the spread of this virus around the world. Um, and then you now go a little bit further that China, aside that, even prior to the whole issue of um, 2021 becoming the vaccine year, so to speak, at the onbreak of, um, of this pandemic, extended so much help as it were, the so-called um, health sick road to many African countries. In fact, there was a um, African-China um, com- summit in Beijing just at the outbreak of the um, pandemic. Then they went ahead to establish this cold chain for the distribution of other vaccines. And in, a, in addition to that, are now also going to provide these vaccines on a first-come, first-served basis and with a discount. So in the end, the West that has been hacking China Global note that has been happening in China as regards their um, so-called um, vaccine nationalism have been very hypocritical, because the truth about it is that some some a country like um, Canada, for instance, had already pre-ordered, you know, almost four or five times the vaccine for its entire population. Um, the Codvas WHO led Codvas facility program is only able to provide 20%. And what is 20% um, of the vaccine, for instance, for a country? 
like Nigeria with 200 million population, is almost like a drop in the ocean. So that's the Ngeya, and that essentially was what I felt that had to be said as it was, because you cannot, on the one hand, heckle China for pushing their um, vaccine um, diplomacy. On the other hand, you have not done enough, as it were, to help the vast continent with many more people who don't have access to these vaccines. Yeah, you know, kind of uh, like part of that, I think, really, really rankles. Like, for example, you know, South Africans were very upset by when it came out that that they're paying 2.5 times as much for the AstraZeneca vaccine, which now turns out to be roughly useless in South Africa. Um, you know, like than European countries because they because you know the official reason being that European countries funded some of the development of of the vaccine, but then it turned out that South Africans South Africans were part of the trials. You know, like it it was that the the vaccine was was uh, was tested in Cape Town, um, so you know. So that, those those kinds of narratives, I think, you know, ended up like creating quite a lot of bad will. I think in you know among African populations, is, is that something that you saw in Nigeria as well? Is there is there like high levels of popular awareness of of these of these different kind of vaccine narratives? Actually, the truth about it is that okay, apart from the narrative by the government. Um, which obviously um, changed a little bit in in January with the Minister of Foreign Affairs pronouncement, and also I think recently, sometime last week, they confirmed the news that um, okay, Nigeria is still part of the Codevas um, program. Um, so on the other hand, there are various um, depending on which social political strata of Nigerians are involved. The very rich ones, for instance, uh, have been able to, some of them have been able to assess the vaccine. So those of them that have maybe dual nationalities or have business interests or family homes in other countries, even in Dubai, for instance. So you have quite a number of politicians who have gone there to get the vaccine. So that's one. So this very well-to-do Nigerians who can afford it and then go outside the country to get it. Then for the ordinary people, there's also another back layer of the vaccine controversy, which also part of the things we, we saw in our initial research um, last year in COVID um, observatory, because also this piece as well is a fallout of an a extensive research that we started in December. It was also the whole thing of the um, conspiracy theories that um, that are surrounding the whole issue of the vaccine. So that's also another little substructure that also needs, um, that's part of the story. But the generality of Nigerians, so to speak, um, those who have no issues with getting the vaccine are just waiting, so to speak. I mean, the typical one of the male guy out there in Lagos or in Abuja would certainly want the vaccine because a lot of things practically has been Ground and whether it comes from China or whether it comes from India, as long as it's effective, I don't think that really people around here have so much qualms as to where it comes from. And if it comes from China, good and fine, as long as it's effective. But do you get the sense picking up on what Kobus was talking about? And this was also the theme of a column in today's Guardian newspaper published by Rwandan President Paul Kagame who's really echoing the sense of frustration that a lot of people in Africa are feeling about the fact that the vaccine nationalism and the hoarding and the short-sightedness of it all. Because at the end of the day, if Africa or other global South countries and regions 
are left unvaccinated, then the rich people in the global north are not going to be safe because the variants will continue to mutate and this will continue to be a problem until everybody more or less is vaccinated and we have herd immunity globally. So that was Paul Kagame's point today. But do you get the sense from the people you interact with in southwestern Nigeria and in your work for Global Voices when you're covering the continent, that that sense that on the soft power part of this story, that if China is seen to be bringing in the solution, that it will be rewarded with an improved standing in the eyes of, say, Nigerians where you live and Africans more broadly? Obviously, I mean it's taken for granted. And you at the, uh, at the beginning of the um, program, you mentioned that quote that a friend in need is a friend indeed. And it's it's I think that's the whole essence of diplomacy. I mean, um, to come to think of it, if at the point when Africans uh, actually needed help, and one of the um, benign, apparently benign superpowers came to their help without so much conditions, it only makes sense that obviously that they should be rewarded for it. And bear in mind that this as well, what the Chinese government is doing, because people tend to forget, is um, all falls, this health, um, Silk Road diplomacy, uh, soft power diplomacy, is all within the context of the Belt and Road Initiative. Which, um, which they started in 2013, and many African governments have, um, are already part of it. So the Chinese presence is growing with each passing day. And of course, yeah, with a lot of nuance, obviously, the whole issue of the loans and so on and so forth. But the truth and, and long and short of it is that I need something, and someone who has the possibility of providing it does so without so much strings attached. Then, obviously, when it comes to signing deals and so on and so forth, it only makes sense that I would grant more um, priority or more favor, to reciprocate that favor to the person. And I think that essentially, even with the, I mean, somehow, reading the op-ed of the Rwandan president today, it's, it's obvious. Do you have an indication of how how the thinking is going in, in different different African countries about the, you know the the Chinese vaccine versus Indian and Russian vaccines? Like you know, kind of whether whether it's a similar situation with them that it's like yeah, if it works, then we don't care where it comes from, or is you know do do you see do you see kind of more distinction being made between between different ones? Because for example, in South Africa, South Africa and India are working closely together, um, you know, and that's a, that's an alliance that goes back a long time. Um, um, you know, and 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 they they so they're, they're kind of close partners on vaccine provision, um, and and we were seeing less of a kind of a you know, of a kind of a welcoming attitude to Chinese and Russian vaccines at the moment in South Africa, although that might well change soon. Um, but you know, kind of do, do do you see kind of distinctions being made between these different kind of global South vaccine sources? I don't I don't think so. Uh, essentially, um, Kobus, um I do think that it still falls within the broad range of. I need the vaccines and who can provide it. We've seen instances, for instance, in Guinea, where the Russian vaccine was um, promoted by government, um, high-level government um, officials who actually came on national television to say they've received the vaccines and so on and so forth. You mentioned the position of South Africa and also um, trying to get um, uh, uh, vaccines from India. 
And I think in the the bottom line for many African countries, I dare to infer, except otherwise, um, except one gets um, any of it evidence that says otherwise, is that as long as the the COVID continues to ravage many parts of the world, and of course, uh, uh, um, the countries within the continent are not exempted from it. And as long as there are vaccines that within every level of testing and efficacy have been subjected to peer reviews and clinical trials and they have a certain level of efficacy, we don't really care where it comes from. So if it comes from China or it comes from India or it comes from Russia, what is important now is that the the trend and the trajectory of the um, pandemic has to be curtailed. People need um, down here also. I mean, we matter we, their lives to be saved. So the the rate of death has to be curtailed. The fatalities and so on. And then, of course, to be also be able to open up fully because the truth about it is that every country in the world is suffering from the same thing even though there have not been lockdowns here again after the second waves but nonetheless that's curtailed a lot of things businesses are sort of on hold um, and essentially wherever the vaccines come and they're effective to a large extent i think we are going to take it but do you get a sense that people who you interviewed for your reporting for this series and those, again, in your community, in your network, and also in some of the other parts of Africa that you cover, are expressing a very precise frustration towards the United States and Europe for their lack of action on vaccines? Or is this just generally rich white people are screwing us again and others are going to come in and help us? What is the precise frustration that people are feeling specifically towards, say, the U.S. and Europe? I think to a large extent, the frustration is um, spreads across not just the typical um, white folks, you know, oppressing us. Because as I pointed out earlier, um, we started this um, Belt and Road Initiative, um, Civic Media Observatory, Global Voices, um, sometime last year in December. And it's um, within the initial research covers a broad range of countries, Brazil, Czech Republic, Egypt, Ethiopia, Greece, Kazakhstan, Myanmar, Nigeria, Venezuela. And um, you see that, okay, all this while, essentially what we have been doing is also to monitor the media ecosystem as it were, and then to be able to precisely through that, to be able to also see patterns. And the same patterns to a large extent among many of these other countries are also emerging. I mean, because it's quite difficult to lay hold of the vaccine, except in countries that also perhaps are a little bit more, um, have more means, economically advanced countries. And within all these countries mentioned in this observatory, they are from developing countries. So it's an issue of, okay, the vaccines are needed. Understandably, the vaccines are also very limited because we just started the development um, not so long ago. At the same time, the developed countries with a lot of um, millions of dollars to spare or euros to spare are able to assess those vaccines faster and earlier for their, for their own citizens than the other 
countries. So I think it's something that cuts across. But of course, um, ours is in within the in the continent is a little bit even much more worse in the sense that okay, the vaccine itself, depending on which type of vaccine, especially those that um the that relied on um, the messenger RNA, needs very um. Um, say deep freezer temperatures to be able to for storage we are talking about minus 20 to 30 degrees celsius so which means already that's already and with with the type of climate we have here it's quite difficult to be able to even to provide such logistics is also a million dollar um industry on its own and it's not present so you now add that to the point that um, to the other frustrating aspect of not even having the vaccines. So if you have opportunity of getting a vaccine that perhaps needs just between two to zero, eight degrees Celsius um, normal fridge refrigerator type of storage, it helps you a lot. Yeah, that's the issue that we're having here in Vietnam, where we've been told that we're not going to probably get the Pfizer vaccines. We're delayed months and months and months now simply because there isn't the cold chain infrastructure to support the vaccines. That's a big challenge. So like Africa, this is a tropical country, very hot. The infrastructure is simply not there to to maintain that. Kobus, this is very interesting here. So I just want to pick up some points that Notch put and get your take on it was the volumes of the Chinese donations of late. Again, I talked about this at the top of the show, 50,000 to the Seychelles, 100,000 to the Republic of Congo, 200,000 to, to Zimbabwe. These are small numbers, but the optics of it are very, very big. It shows that the Chinese are present. And I'm just wondering why the Americans and why the British and the Europeans aren't making an effort optically. That is to bring a cold chain, a small cold chain kind of station in one part of Africa, distribute 50,000, 60,000. That's not going to take away from their own domestic supplies in any meaningful way, but they will not cede the ground entirely to the Chinese. And the Chinese seem to be capturing the headlines here, and at least the narrative, by giving away a very small investment. 50,000 to the Seychelles is 25,000 people. We're talking to the Republic of Congo, 50,000 people are getting inoculated by this. These aren't huge numbers, and they're getting a big payback. So it just, it just baffles me why we're not seeing at least some counter-narrative coming from China's supposed rivals in the U.S. and Europe. Why do you think it is, Kobus? Um, this is a very interesting question, and it's actually, you know, I was in a conversation with some State Department officials um, last week, and they were actually raising this issue too, because they were pointing out that, that you know, obviously the, the, the U.S. redirected some of its health budget in Africa to, to, to deal with some COVID issues. So it's not like the U.S. is not doing anything. There's actually, you know, in, 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 some, in some cases, depending on how you count it, they're, they're kind of outstripping China in, in, in terms of the, the amount that they, of help that they're delivering. It seems to me that there's a maybe, and and here I'm, I'm it's really just conjecture, but but you know I, I wonder if part of it has to do with political calculus within those countries, you know that is that, you know it it might still be a kind of a Trumpian hangover in the U.S., you know kind of where where there's just a feeling that at this moment of crisis, kind of like hard self-interest is actually going to play better politically than than making a show of philanthropy to the rest of the world, maybe, I, you know kind of um what what, what do you think? Yeah, I think essentially there are two ways I look at it. Yeah, of course, the the issue of the Trump hang, hangover is still there. You don't call 
a group of people she told countries and, and then expect that all of a sudden that the optics will be so nice and fine. So it's there. And obviously it's something that unfortunately the US has to battle with for quite some time because they almost became a patriarch among other civilized nations. So in that aspect, okay, true and true and good. But also in the border term of um, US African relationships, relationship, I mean, going down through history. I think the COVID vaccine in itself and the whole issue of the pandemic has really um, brought out a lot of things to the fore. Because in essentially, I, I think so, I, I, I stand to be corrected. The broader um, interest for the United Nations in the continent has not, it has been just um, to a large extent very superficial or to say this is cosmetic. And okay, it has been something that has been on, despite the fact that they had more historical ties towards than perhaps the Chinese government. On the other hand, the Chinese government, for instance, and over the years, have been very pragmatic in their approach. So they don't hide under the um, lens of, you know, trying to move things through an ideological spectrum or tying their aids to certain things. They are very pragmatic and to some extent, okay, um, quite complicit with local corruption, for instance. So which makes it a totally different type of relationship. And essentially, that's the reason why the optics are far much um, better for them than the West. Because the Chinese come in, what do you want? We give it to you, even though it's just a little of what you need, but nonetheless, we, we approached you when you had no option of getting it from any other p person. And it sells. But at the end of the day, let's be very honest here that China has a complex relationship with Nigeria in terms of optics, in just the same way that the U.S. is having a Trump hangover in Nigeria. So in many ways, the Chinese are too. I mean, it was a tough year last year for China-Africa relations and China-Nigeria relations in particular. People haven't forgotten what happened in Guangzhou. There were dozens of arrests of illegal Chinese miners you know, throughout the country, particularly in the north. There was also the question of Chinese corruption in the EFF, that's the anti-corruption, crackdown on Chinese corruption in Nigeria. The House of Representatives for six, seven months was just one thing after another coming up about the dangers of Chinese loans and the question of sovereignty. And again, a lot of it wasn't necessarily true, but it was certainly very, very negative and very hostile to China. And I'm wondering about the soft power context that the vaccines are coming into in a country like Nigeria, where you're saying, yes, there is an upside, but they too, like the Americans, have some ground to make up from a tough year last year. Yeah, of course. Um, Setting it so, I mean, for instance, during the, as you rightly pointed out, how um, African nationals, um, we are treated in various parts of China during the um, during the, at, at the very thick of the pandemic, uh, we've not gotten over it. Or, for instance, how the their so-called the Chinese um, offered to send in doctors to help, and they were rejected by the Nigerian Medical Association, for instance, because obviously it makes a lot of sense. You've not put your house in order, and then you're trying to help. But um, nonetheless, um, if you are to put all these things in a scale, besides or um yeah and comparison with also with that of the united states somehow they seem to be doing much more better in the optics than 
um, the West. Unfortunately, that's the truth because so far, um, the Alibaba group, for instance, um, I think they made many donations. At least I know we received in Nigeria within last year about two consignments of um, materials free of charge donations for um, COVID-19. Um, I mean, so all these things now add to the current, I think it's an issue of um, the Chinese are more apt or um, um, how do I put it? Um, they're more apt or in, in taking advantage of the moment, which is what the West, unfortunately, precisely because of the Trump handover, hangover, was not able to do. And precisely because of that, they lost the leadership of, um, of um, the global, of, of, uh, yeah, of the world. And the Chinese were really hit on the iron when it was red hot. They took advantage of US disappearance from the global stage. And, and, that's, where, and that's the reason why we're even talking about it here now. One of the interesting developments of the of this Chinese vaccine rollout is is how is how one of one of the bases for for uh, you know for, for one of the logistics bases um, underlying this this whole pro this process is in Dubai and it seems like you know that we we've pointed out several times over the years how uh, one of the maybe inadvertent aspects of the Belt and Road is that it's it's stitching the Middle East and Africa kind of closer together um, you know that it's creating a lot of kind of logistical bridges between between those two areas um, in the process of creating links to China. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you see um, other, you know, kind of, we talked about Russia and India as, as, as possible partners, but other kind of regional partners like the UAE, how they might feature in into this rollout as it goes on? Um, obviously, by linking the um, logistic hub, um, the UAE and also with Ethiopia's distribution hub and then some I, I heard also there's um, the plan of making Morocco um, one of the places where they roll out the for the production of the vaccines. I think I think it's quite strategic for for China also considering the fact that these are somehow these are natural as it were for most upper class Nigerians. UAE, um, Dubai and so on lately have become um, choice um, destinations of choice for most um, middle class Nigerians um, to spend their holidays and also a little bit of um, business digging um, in addition to that. So I think it's a strategic alliance that they are trying to build so to speak, and in the end, so far, it's it's of um, benefit to both to both um, regional um, groups or countries as it were. And if it works, good and fine for them. After reading your articles, I was trying to think about what the consequences are of China pulling this off in a country like Nigeria. Let's assume that China is going to be successful in deploying its vaccines to places like Nigeria and elsewhere. The air bridge is now in place. The Chinese vaccines are starting to flow. The production is ramping up. They're now outsourcing the production of vaccines in countries like Brazil. So it wouldn't surprise me in a country like Nigeria that has a rather formidable 
uh, medical community, medical industry, and pharmaceutical production, that you'll start to see the production of Chinese vaccines, just like in Brazil, also take place in Nigeria. And put this again into a context that the Chinese have been getting a lot of stuff done recently in Nigeria. So we have the launch of the new Lagos Ibadan Railway, which is very exciting for a lot of people. There was now the connection of that of the SGR to the Apapa port. There's also now the AKK pipeline that is being funded and built with Chinese money. Uh, there's a lot of things that are happening on the ground, and it gets this sense that the Chinese are actually building stuff and getting... I always, I always like to say getting stuff done. I always use the bad words for it, but getting stuff done. They're actually delivering results. And if the Chinese are able to kind of come through again on vaccines, it just adds to that perception of like, here we go. The Chinese are delivering on big, important things, transportation, oil and gas, now vaccines. And I'm thinking about the relevance of, say, the U.S. relationship with Nigeria, where Nigerian students are not traveling to the U.S. like they were because of visa bans, whereas Nigerian students are, in fact, traveling to China in large numbers pre-COVID and hopefully after COVID. And so that connection between the two countries, because you wrote in your, in your second piece, if China can pull this off, it will give them a competitive edge in this market. Talk to me about what that competitive edge looks like if China, in fact, can pull this off. I think, I think it's, it's quite obvious. Um, bear in mind that um, in as much as, okay, um, we are hacking um, the West for their vaccine nationalism, nonetheless, um, the Chinese um, soft power vaccine diplomacy that is not um, a free gift. Essentially, they, they have a third approach of Chinese protagonist actors in Africa, the Chinese government, state-owned organizations and private firms that are already doing business. And in a country like Nigeria, the whole, and of course, again, you move that across the continent, the whole aim is to get the groundwork for further commercial deals, essentially. And um, that's we are already seeing that because with the B and um, Belt and Road Initiative, um, was it, I think, sometime, um, sometime recently, um, 128 Nigerians um, just um, graduated. Some Nigerian students just graduated from um, a Chinese university on real, um, real, um, real engineering. And it was part of a project that started um, some two years ago. They signed an MOU between um, a Chinese um, university and their Madbego University, Zaria. And um, part of that was to produce um, graduates to train students with the um, Chinese South University in, in, in railway and um, um, railway engineering. So what does that mean? It means that essentially they are confirming, not just confirming, but even to a large extent, putting so much emphasis, which naturally would um, end up with so much being able to keep a stronghold, for instance, on the, um, um, Nigerian, the Nigerian market or the railway um, market in Nigeria. 
because if you have a partnership in which Nigerians have been trained abroad and the um, China Civil Engineering Construction Corporation Limited, which is a um, Chinese company that has been doing that um, in Nigeria, it means that they avoid and they seem to understand the geonational politics and to a great extent also the um, ethically mo um, um, the motivations call it in a in a country like Nigeria with many ethnic groups and also where corruption is very high. Take for instance the China Civil Engineering Construction Company built a university of transportation in Castina and Castina is the home state of the president. So it's something that perhaps a Western civil construction company will never do precisely because of the um the ethical dimensions within this type of gift but they do it so in the end they are really going all out to capture the nigerian market so to speak but nonetheless i don't think that um, nigeria as a country or nigerians um, so to speak will totally abandon looking towards um, western countries because there's quite as you rightly know that uh, quite a number of nigerians i mean part of the um, the, one of the most um, greatest um, immigrant populations in the U.S. and also in Europe. And there are many years of relationship. Students are going there to study. People are going, checking out to those countries to perhaps get a better living. So it's going to be a, a sort of, um, say, 50-50 sort of relationship. But nonetheless, what the Chinese have been able to do or what I see will be the main impact and ripple effect of tears is that it has now given a country like Nigeria and Nigerians a second option. So gone are the days where it's almost 100% reliance on, on, on the Western nations. It's now much more than that. If we can't go to the West, we can go up to the East and China happens to be there. The articles are COVID-19 vaccine in Africa caught between China's soft power diplomacy and the West's vaccine nationalism. It's a two-part series. It's absolutely essential reading at this moment right now when so much is in motion in the vaccine soft power diplomacy politics front, uh, not just with the Chinese, but also Indians and Russians as well. The stakes are very high. It was written by Nwachuku Egbuniki, who is the Sub-Saharan Africa Community Manager for the independent journalism website Global Voices. He joins us on the line from Ibagan in Oyo State. Uh, Nwach, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing this day and all the great work that you're doing at Global Voices, how can they get in touch with you? Um, simple. I'm in the, in, in, on the Global Voices sites, I mean, my... Uh, you just click on my name, um, the contributor, and you can either um, contact me through Twitter. My handle is there, and also you can send me an email. Okay, we'll put links to your Twitter and also your Global Voices profile on the website. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It was absolutely fascinating. Congratulations on an excellent series, and we're looking forward to staying in touch. Thanks a lot. It was my pleasure as well. Thanks for having me. Kobus, I really hope that people from the European Union, from even Japan, the United States, and the global North countries were listening very, very carefully to what Nuach had to say. 
because there was a very important message that this is slipping away through their fingers and the Chinese are just moving right in. And again, the investments that the Chinese are making are not huge here. I mean, the air bridge, in fact, the air bridge is being done by two private companies. Now, again, we don't know the financing behind it, but it is Alibaba and Ethiopian Airlines. Well, Ethiopian, not exactly a private company, but still, it's being done at the corporate level, not even at the state level. We're just not seeing the engagement coming from the United States and Europe on this important issue, and the Chinese, again, are showing up. Now, I don't want to overstate the Chinese contribution here because, again, it's a very complicated story. There is a lot to it. But when they were able to deliver the air bridge in 68 days, 68 days, and it just goes to this narrative of get stuff done. We promise you something, it shows up, whether it's a railway, a dam, whether it's now an air bridge to deliver vaccines. And it brought me back to our discussion that we had last year with Henry Chierma from Ghana. And he said, and he was from the Ghanaian Finance Ministry, it's an excellent interview, I recommend everybody to go on the, the website to listen to it. But one of the points that he talked about in Ghana, about why Ghanaians prefer to deal with the Chinese, was because from the time that negotiations started on this Sino-Hydro bauxite for resources deal, it was only 18 months from the first day of the negotiation to a shovel going into the ground. And he said that was near a record. And he could never have been able to do that with another partner. And I'm not convinced that there's many other countries out there that could have built an air bridge in 68 days. And that in a place like Africa where time is of the essence and there's an urgency to these things, the fact that the Chinese are delivering is significant. And I think as... Uh, you know, as we heard today from Nuach, it's going to pay off in soft power dividends. I think one one of the issues is that, in in, in in from one perspective, one can't particularly kind of fault Europe, like Western countries, for being uh, for being self interested or, or for for kind of going very small and narrow right now. You know, kind of because when when they're facing domestic crises, except for the fact that that kind of being beneficent global powers interested in human rights and human welfare everywhere is their way of thinking about themselves. I think that's the big problem. The problem isn't, you know, like, like you know, Belgium not flying out a billion vaccines is, you know, is, is kind of understandable considering where, where you know, kind of how difficult things are in, in, in parts of the global north at the moment, except for the fact that that is how they think of themselves, that's how they sell themselves in the world, and and that they're very happy to to, to seize on any particular kind of lapse in China to, to you know, to, to to argue that 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 they are better partners to the global south than than China, I think that's where the issue lies. Is that in a moment of crisis when one needs partners to step up and they're not stepping up, that's something to know, right? Like that that that's an important thing to keep in mind. So 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 in so in a lot of ways, it's sh it's reshaping the relationship. I think. Yeah, and it's the duplicity part that that Nwach was talking about, which is don't piss on the Chinese when you yourself are not doing anything. And it's not necessarily that because the Chinese are the ideal partner, but they are, they're there. They're actually showing up again. And it's the theme of our show over the past five years is the Chinese are just showing up. And just by virtue of being present, you're getting credit for a lot of things that others aren't. And by being engaged in that sense. But I think you're right. It's the, it's the, the, the two tracks there. On the one hand saying we are 
uh, you know, committed to global health and at the same time not providing this important solution. But I want to go back to your discussion that you had with some State Department folks, and I think this is important because I've had very similar discussions as well, that the United States contributes far more in public health in Africa on orders of magnitude, you know, hundreds of times more. The actual Chinese public health contribution in Africa is quite minimal. The Chinese have been very strategic about where they engage things like PPE, malaria, and now vaccines that are high profile and get a lot of media attention. But at the end of the day, when you look at the size of PEPFAR, which is the HIV AIDS program and the contribution alone to South Africa, much less to so many other African countries, it's, it's, it's huge. But yet they don't do effective communications. And so if anything right now, they're being beat on the media side, on the communication side. That's the part where they're losing this narrative, because as you rightly pointed out, they diverted funds from PEPFAR into COVID. So the United States is actually doing stuff, but they're not getting the credit for it because they're ineffective and downright horrible in marketing communications of what they're actually doing. And that's a big part of this as well. But at the end of the day, this is about optics and politics is optics in many respects. It's a big part of it. So if you're not bringing the communications to it, you're losing the optics game. And if you're losing the optics game, you're losing the political game. I, I agree with you. Um, you know, the optics is, is they're, they're really crucial. Um, and, and I agree with you that, that that could be rolled out much more effectively. But I think there's a, there's a, there's another issue here too. And here I'm I'm on somewhat sh shaky ground and it would be great for us to have a, a, a you know, a, 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 like a pandemic expert kind of coming in to, to discuss this particular issue. But as far as I understand it, Yes, PEPFAR, amazing rollout, like incredibly successful, very, very popular, you know, kind of like really big as well, like just, just like billions and billions of dollars being, you know, kind of being pumped into sub-Saharan Africa to deal with HIV. And, you know, it's very successful. Um, however, I think one one of the things that, that, that we don't keep in mind or don't discuss enough is the way that domestic issues within within places like the US roll out or affect their, their, their foreign kind of engagement. And one example, is I think one of the reasons you know why PEPFAR works so well is because of that alliance between India and South Africa where they advocated through years and years of very hard work to, to loosen intellectual property on HIV drugs in order to 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 produce generics more 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 cheaply you know so so that that greatly increased the the, the efficacy of, of of these kind of drug rollouts in the global south and we have to keep in mind that within the US itself like HIV positive people who who don't have health insurance pay north like in excess of two thousand dollars a month for their HIV medication you know th that the, the the kind of the fact that that is still happening within the US is affecting the way that the the, the, the fact that that is the, the way that the domestic system works in the US affects the way that the US deals with the rest of the world as well you know kind of including the 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 like them kind of you know being very kind of reluctant to to weaken IP um, you know kind of laws in, in, in cases, even in, in, in kind of extreme cases like the COVID pandemic. So, you know, kind of, I might be getting some of kind of micro facts, not 100% straight here, but like, but, but I think my larger point, you know, kind of makes sense in the sense that, that this is, this is, a, has to do with the complex ways that domestic kind of arrangements in, in the US also then 
play out in the international engagement. And that, I think, is a bigger problem, more, a more intractable problem than, than just the optics of the situation. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that as U.S. vaccine rates now really go up quite a bit, and finally we're starting to see some competence in the U.S. management of this crisis, and we're starting to get close to the million vaccines a day. And that's again, for a lot of people, there's a creeping optimism that the light might be at the end of the tunnel. And by next year, we will have some form of herd immunity in the United States. And that will then maybe free up resources for the United States to start diverting some of its vaccines, its expertise, its equipment that it no longer needs domestically to start redeploying that to places like Africa. That is the optimistic kind of worldview, we haven't really seen the groundwork being laid. And it's one of the things, again, that I think that the Americans should take away from what the Chinese are doing is this back-end logistics side of things is super important, especially in markets like here in ASEAN and in Africa that are underdeveloped, very tropical, rife with corruption. These are difficult places to do things, no doubt. And I, I just don't see the advanced teams out there anticipating that there may be a moment where the United States will engage more. That might be me, as you talked about, you're on shaky ground on the point you tried to make. I may be on shaky ground that the advanced teams are in fact coming from CDC and other US agencies to deploy or the European unions at some point to do what the Chinese just did with Tsainiao and Ethiopian, that they're gonna do deals like this. I haven't seen it, but maybe it's happening. But at the end of the day right now, it looks like, based on what we heard from Nwach, that the prize on the soft power diplomacy front is going to go to China. They have the lead right now. This can change very quickly, though. Again, I want to put a word of caution out there. This is a high-risk, high-reward strategy. If Chinese vaccines are seen to be counterfeit, if they are not working, if they are not deployed well, or if there is another uh, you know, soft power bonanza problem like we had in Guangzhou last year, all of this can be complicated. So this is a very, very fluid situation. Listen, this is the kind of thing we do a deep dive on every single day. Today, I tracked, you know, 15 different donations, stories from around the world. We're linking between what China's doing in Africa, ASEAN, the Americas, and other points in the global south. So you see the broader context all in our daily email newsletter. So if this is a topic and a discussion that you find interesting, you would love our newsletter. It's only $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. If you're interested, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We'd love to have you join our growing community of readers. We'll continue with this discussion on the vaccine diplomacy front and the soft power implications of it, because this is going to be one of the defining stories of 2021 and beyond as well. So something in our newsletter and here on this podcast as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.